In Melbourne's early days, Royal Parade would have marked the start of the long journey to Sydney. Nowadays, it's bustling with trams, bikes and people coming in and out of nearby hospitals and universities. Amid this chaos, it's easy to miss the Granger Museum, a modest red brick building with neatly curved ends and high windows. His name might not ring any bells now, but Percy Granger was once Australia's most famous composer, so famous that 15,000 people turned up to his wedding at the Hollywood Bowl. But he also had secrets he kept hidden from the world, secrets that are now on public display here at Granger's very own museum. I'm Angus Thompson, and this is Uncurated, a podcast from the Centre for Advancing Journalism at the University of Melbourne. Each episode, we take one object from the university's collections and look at the forgotten stories behind them. This week, a hank of human hair and a composer hungry for fame after death. Reporter Nell Girard sets out to replace a hidden note in Australian musical history. The last thing I expected to see when combing through the Granger Museum website was a hank of hair. Not only hair, but human hair that had allegedly been cut off someone's head as they lay to rest in their coffin. This may sound like the beginning of a true crime series, but this isn't about a grisly murder or a crime gone wrong. This is just about one man. One man with many faces. An eccentric showman, an avid sadomasochist, an obsessive collector, a self-proclaimed fashion designer, and a musical genius. Percy Granger, who was born in Melbourne, Australia in 1882, was a virtuoso pianist, composer, educator, music educator, and founded his own museum in Melbourne, Australia, to be a centre for studying music, particularly music from the islands surrounding Australia. He was one of the first ethnomusicologists before we even knew that term. This is Teresa Ballou an adjunct professor of music history at Eastern Connecticut State University, she wrote her master's thesis on Percy Granger. And um, that's basically who he was. He lived until 1961. He moved to um, America during the First World War and became an American citizen, but always, always considered himself to be an Australian composer. Teresa speaks of the incredible fame that Percy accrued through his music career, breaking sales records for 75 years in a row. And yet his name and reputation have in many ways disappeared into the background of Australian history. How could a once globally renowned composer fall from legend to lost cause so quickly? You'd think he must be important. There's a whole museum dedicated to him. And yet here I am, knowing next to nothing about the wildly odd man of music, Percy Granger. Compositional life, I have been a leader without followers. Where musical progress and compositional experiment are discussed, my name is never mentioned. Can a more complete aesthetic failure be imagined? Bringing my attention back to this creepy hank of hair, I find it weirdly striking. It sends shivers down my spine, but also draws me in closer. Its bright, vivid ginger colour jumps out at me, demanding my attention and holding it. It's about the length of my forearm, plaited together and curved in ways that make it look like a snake slithering along the exhibit's base. It's placed beside a small cardboard box, adorned with a label reading Mother's Hair. This has been scribbled onto it, in what looks like panicked, rushed handwriting. 
It's Percy's handwriting. And this is Percy's mother's hair. We know that this hair is from about 1922, so it's, it's literally 100 years old, which is pretty fascinating. This is Heather Gaunt, the curator of the Granger Museum. She is just as mesmerised by this hair as I am. So Granger cut this hair from his mother. We think that he actually cut it from her. Actually, I'm not sure that we know about this particular one that it was cut off in her coffin, but we do have hair and other fragments that Percy actually took from his mother when she was laid out after she died. I'm not sure why, but I feel queasy looking at this. What kind of person cuts hair off his dead mother and displays it to the public? What was going through Percy's head? And how have I not heard of this whack job until now? I've been studying at the University of Melbourne for over four years, and yet I'd never set foot inside the Granger Museum. Tucked away down Royal Parade, its value, much like Percy himself, has been largely overlooked, blending into the shadows cast by Melbourne Uni's towering trees. Within its brick walls, you'll find thousands of items, from letters to musical instruments, and Percy look-like mannequins to DIY costumes. These dark walls hold secrets. Sexy secrets. All of the objects were collected by Percy, who was obsessive about preserving things, even human remains, and his own sex toys. They offer valuable insight into this fascinating man's psyche. To begin my journey unpacking Percy's fall from fame, I returned to curator Heather Gaunt. Fun fact, she didn't really know or care about Percy before either, but she does now, and she loves how quirky he was. He would literally have a bit of an acrobatic or athletic show for participants in concerts where he would run into the auditorium and, and characteristically leap over chairs, leap up onto the stage, zip over to the grand piano and then perform this concert in front of everybody who's going, oh, wow, this is wonderful. And of course, the local newspapers went wild with how fantastic this was. Percy certainly loved a spectacle and didn't shy away from the spotlight it was imperative that he remained in the public eye for as long as he could, if not forever. During this journey of mine, I came across a thick book filled with letters Percy had written between 1910 and 1914. Struggling to hold the book upright, I delved into some of Percy's copious personal thoughts about his legacy. All that deals with the time after my death enthralls me. I am hungry for fame after death. Fear of death and loss, destruction and forgottenness spur me to compose, collect, preserve and embalm. So what's the best way to get attention? Be as weird as you can. And Percy was a whiz at being weird. While looking through Percy's online collection, images of his creepy life-sized mannequins staring right at me, Heather tells me about Percy's countless oddities. So, for example, his diet and he's shifting to vegetarianism, I think, in the 1920s and, and having this incredibly rigid diet then for a long time. So he, he sort of used his body as an experimental platform as well as his mind in a lot of ways. Then there was his fashion designing. Percy handmade outfits made out of toweling, intended for comfort, utility and individuality. 
but all I see are confused, harlequin-esque numbers that shout Swiss yodeler rather than sleek power suit. But the most unusual thing about this museum must be that it showcases Percy's taste for BDSM, which has been carefully preserved and exhibited for all to see in the Lust Branch at the Granger Museum. This is an entire wing of the building dedicated to his sadomasochistic practices. It includes a range of sexual objects like cod pieces and his own personal collection of smart, all of which were very taboo objects to have at the time. So for something so naughty, why did Percy want a whole section of a public museum dedicated to it? I asked Heather Gaunt why. That side of his nature didn't really come out into the public realm until after his death, you know, in the 1970s when the Lust Branch was revealed to the world. There's fascinating aspects of, of his deep commitment to an exploration of the sensual and how that then ties into his professional and artistic practice as a composer. Percy loved the old slap and tickle. He literally loved the slapping, whipping, scratching, suffocating, even standing butt naked out in the snow. He was a classic sadomasochist, all in the name of art. He really felt that he was using that medium to push the boundaries of sensual, emotional expression. Some of his writings later in his life are so fascinating where he completely dismisses this sense of his music as being, you know, light, joyous, fun, the sort of characterizations that many people in his own lifetime brought to his music. For him, it was about ferocity and, and warlike expression and trying to get the nub of anger and frustration. Heather says that Percy wanted the world to recognise both his musical genius and his bizarre behaviours. For Percy, it was a simpler matter and it was really just, I've got to get out there, I've got to get famous because that's how I'm going to make lots of money and I'm brilliant, so why wouldn't I be? So in his early years, you see in his letters how he's He's just loving putting himself in this in this context and just sort of, I, I feel like he's just observing what happens to the world around me when I'm out there pushing famousness and reflecting on that. But after his dear mother's suicide in 1922, Percy's own mortality began to haunt him. From then on, his attention turned from becoming an everyday celeb to building an everlasting legacy, an immortal amongst men. Hearing all this, standing in a museum built about this guy, by this guy, he sounds like a 1950s version of Kanye West. I thought he had a bit of a messiah complex. My letters shall be admired by a yet unborn generation. I always hope that my letters will be handed over to immortality one day. Old age is a gradual running to bits. Nevertheless, I still feel I will live forever and my fury to leave my mark on the future was never keener. Interestingly, later in his life, he really turned that around and he was very tortured almost around what fame meant and he found himself very dissatisfied with immediate fame. I guess our, our contemporary version would be the, the fame that suddenly happens like the Kardashians, whether it's, it's fame that has no basis or fame that um, happens through the flurry of social media or the press, but then disappears again just as fast. So he, he obviously thought about that a lot. And instead he flipped his thinking to something he called long-timey fame. So he started thinking, oh, actually, 
I want to be famous forever. I just want to be there forever. I want people to keep thinking about me into the future. And so then that becomes a really logical in his head to, okay, so I'll put concrete in the ground. I'll build something physical. So he hitched up his britches and got to work building his museum. Not only did he do most of the heavy work when designing and building it, he also funded the project. The museum became his love child, undergoing many changes over time and filling to the brim with Percy's belongings. He sought fame hungrily, and yet there were limits. The Lust Branch was kept sealed and hidden from the public until ten years after Percy's death. It might be because of its explosive contents. Photographs of himself and his wife Ella, naked and whipped, his experimental auto-asphyxiation contraptions, and his collection of nearly 70 whips. Maybe he was trying to protect his wife's reputation following his death. Or maybe he recognised there were things that were too taboo, even for a celebrity. Even if his sexual practices had inspired his musical innovation. I cannot give a true picture of my tone art and of my art life if I do not tell of the cruel joy that is one of the main stirs of my being. Fierceness is in the keynote of my music. The object of my music is not to entertain, but to agonise. Theresa Balu believes Percy's complicated relationship with pain and sex stemmed from his childhood. His mother, Rose, loved her son deeply, but Rose was raised in a family in which the boys were horsewhipped. And uh, so she whipped Percy. She thought this was the thing to do. But Percy, because he loved his mother so intensely, began to obviously equate love with pain because he took these stoically. His mother praised him when he took it stoically. Uh, You know, she felt that was a manly thing, even in a little boy. And I mean, she could really lay it on. You know, we're not just talking about paddling. We're talking about a horse whip. So I think that Percy, in my opinion, equated love with pain because of this feeling he'd had from childhood with his mother. So he gravitated towards this kind of tragic, Uh, love, pain area when we're thinking about literature or when we're thinking about personal life. This stops me in my tracks. Up until now, I have been learning all the outlandish things Percy thought and did. I saw a wild card with little consideration of others around him. After hearing this, I feel sorry for him. A child beaten and bruised, mistaking torture for love. It would drive anyone crazy. He said, he felt sometimes that if he was on a train, that the train was going to derail just to destroy him because he was so evil. He had all of this in him. So I know he felt ambivalent about this. Yes, it drove him creatively. And he definitely felt if he didn't have that in his life, his creativity would suffer. But it also was a burden to him because he knew that in some sense, this wasn't quite maybe what he wanted to be or what people would want him to be. He was hopeful that Someday, humanity would be at the place where they would no longer look at this with abhorrence and disgust and say, oh my God, I can't even think about this man because look what he did or what he wrote or what he said. His eccentricities drove him to create his masterpieces. Or at least Percy thought so. But his sexual preferences, his meat shunning, even rumours of incest between him and his mother, these all may have driven Percy towards artistic greatness. 
but they also shot him in the foot by making him out to be just another creative weirdo. This is the composition that Percy is best known for now, Country Gardens. He wrote it simply as a birthday gift for his mother in 1918. Upon first listen, I thought, oh, what a sweet, simple English ditty. But where's the pizzazz that I'd expect from a wild card like Percy? And apparently, Percy would agree with me. According to his letters, he loathed this piece. A typical English country garden is more likely to be a vegetable plot than used to grow flowers, so you can think of turnips as I play it. Percy yearned for lasting fame so badly, yet likely the only piece of his recognised today is one he utterly despised. The irony is painful. It's the composition that seems least connected to his unique mentality, his energy, and his sexual urges, all of which Percy believed to be fundamental to his being and his creativity. I asked Heather Gaunt if Percy's eccentricities add to or detract from his legacy. I have to say that all those, the oddities as we've described them, hinder his reputation. I think for people who are deeply interested in music composition, it doesn't make any difference because they actually don't care about that stuff. But for the, for people who aren't deeply interested in the music side, then that's all Percy is. He's a, he's a whole bunch of oddities, really. And so then you either think that's fascinating and confronting and interesting, or you go, oh, who gives a shit? <laughs> He's just another guy who's quirky and weird and had weird relationships. I mean, often I think we would literally never think about the guy if he hadn't built the museum. I certainly wouldn't have. The painful reality is that Percy Granger disappeared. As time wore on, he crossed the minds of Australians less and less. Teresa Ballou says his musical legacy has more or less fallen into oblivion. Yes, he was definitely hidden right from the time well, I would say even before his death in 61, up through the end of the century almost. If you say the name Percy Granger, you've got to whistle Country Garden or something before people even know who that was because they associate him with just little light pieces. Um, and they even then they didn't know the name. I think it was had to do a lot also with the times themselves. When you move into the 50s and the 60s after the Second World War, I think people were really kind of shell-shocked, if I can say that, and they just didn't have time for a lot of things. And, and this was just another so-called eccentric person. In a way, also, Percy did retreat, in a sense, from a, a lot of active concertizing. He worked with colleges and universities. He quit the concert platform about over a decade before his death because he wanted to work just with young people and amateur organizations and he didn't want to have to go into the competition and the conventionality of the normal concert circuit anymore. So his name was no longer out there in front of audiences and in front of the public. I'm back scouring the Granger Museum's online collection. When was the last time someone went there to learn about Percy or to just laugh at the shoddy sex toys scattered around? I'm looking at the hank of hair once again, still a bit queasy, still a bit unsure. Percy was a complex guy that evokes complex reactions. In some ways, he was over the top, a man of obsession. But I can see now that he is a hidden gem of Australian history. 
Percy's entire life was dedicated to being different, modern, unique. Yet the only imprint he managed to make on Australian music culture was Country Gardens, almost a pastiche of British music, to be listened to over tea. Maybe Percy's fall from fame indicates how timid Australians were about standing out, how desperate we were to mimic the coloniser, and how willing we were to snub out a musical innovator in order to stay in line. Beyond the hidden man himself, the museum lives on as an ode to individualism, encouraging freedom of expression and experimentation of the self. Because that is what Percy was all about. That could be his true legacy. Maybe we need a little more crazy in this world. And I, for one, am glad I got to know the wildly odd man of music, Percy Granger. That story was made by Nell Gerards and Jenny Sai. And that brings season one of Uncurated to an end. Thank you for listening along. It's been an absolute blast sharing these stories with you, and we hoped you learned something new about Australia's hidden history. Uncurated is made on the land of the Wurundjeri people by graduate students at the Centre for Advancing Journalism. Our producer is Nell Gerards, and sound design is by Clancy Barlin and Thomas Phillips. Our theme tune is by Ben Salter as part of the Living Instruments Project. Special thanks, as always, to our executive producers, Rachel Fountain and Louisa Lim. Thanks also to Ryan Johnson, Ryan Jeffries, and everyone in the Museums and Collections Department. If you've enjoyed this series, check out The Yarn, showcasing the best stories from students at the Centre for Advancing Journalism. And stay tuned for Season 2 of Uncurated. I'm Angus Thompson. Thanks for listening. 